0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for episode number 18 of On the Move. This week, Joe and I had our friend Kip Fladlin on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Kip means quite a bit to me. He's a guy who helped me out early on in my journey with this horsemanship. And I uh, haven't had a lot of time to spend with him since then, but I've always kept an eye on him and I look up to him quite a bit. So I was really glad when he agreed to do the podcast with us. And, well, Joe, what do you think? He's quite a guy, huh?
1: Yeah, man. Kip's awesome. He was really fun to talk to. Um, Really kind of down-to-earth, easy guy to talk to as well, which is um, something I always appreciate, you know. But, yeah, the wealth of experience he had and, and just how he was able to talk about things Kind of, uh, he, he was laid back, but you could tell he, he really kind of knew what he was talking about. And man, he was just kind of an enjoyable person to have a conversation with. I don't really know how to articulate it any better. Um, just a fun guy to talk to.
0: Yeah. And it's cool that he's, he's done kind of what you and I are getting into, Right now, he's done it for all these years, riding horses for the public, especially. That's what I'm referring to. And so to get to talk to him and especially now, that's this is almost, uh, it's been almost three years since I got to spend some time with him. So to get to talk to him now, after getting to reflect on different scenarios, different situations and problems you would have in the horse industry and riding horses for the public and just the journey in general to get to revisit some things that I would have never thought to ask him back then was really enjoyable and boy, you can't beat that to get some really good advice from a guy like him and put that in the bank. Um, boy, it that's what this podcast is all about. And that
1: this has been a very enjoyable interview. Yeah. Yeah absolutely and and like we told him it was one of those deals like recording or no recording that's just the type of conversation I'd want to have with someone who like you said is um has had a successful career and and spent 20 years doing what we're trying to do right now um how we're trying to make a living so yeah it was it was really cool and can't can't thank him for his time enough because i i know he probably stays awfully busy but um it was cool that he made time for two kind of young up-and-comer guys like us Um, and that means a lot because i know um you don't always have to do that and and spend the time to do that so that was great yeah and like you said recording or no recording
0: that's no joke because we're just done doing the podcast with him and we're still not sure if his recording is going to work out or not so these folks might have to listen to half a podcast but hopefully that's not the case (laughs) if in the signature guys it says the podcast is about an hour and a half then we got the whole thing on there so anyhow enjoy this episode uh drive safe if you're driving have fun have a great day and uh we'll see you guys down the road
2: So when I watched previous podcasts of your guys, I had no video whatsoever. It was just the audio. Correct.
0: Uh, we've posted a few of them to YouTube. Like recently, we put up our oh. podcast with Buck. You might have seen that. Um, I did a lot of it that too. Mean is, anything? <laughs> yeah. So it's on YouTube now. And like this one here, you know, God willing, if all the video's good, we'd love to put this on YouTube too. We'll see. It'll oh, I For see. sure, come out on Tuesday as an audio version. And then
2: whether we post oh, yeah. some clips or we put it up as a video, it just depends. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, no big deal. So you yeah, can just lo- send me my modeling fees when you do it all. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll
1: at least do something, maybe enough to cover the mustache wax, I guess. Well, that'll
2: work. That'll be fine. So because it's not cheap. yeah i bet what what kind do you use is there a certain brand you've kind of stuck with for a while i tell you what there's an outfit in oregon that's called oregon wild hair and and it has been really good wax for me it lasts a long time it's really easy to apply it comes in a little tiny tin so it's all good so that's that's what i've been using for probably 10 years now so Shoot.
1: So excuse my Good ignorance, deal. I, I've never like known anyone who uses mustache wax. Is that when you say it lasts a long time, it's, is that like how far the can goes? Or is that like when you apply it, it'll stick with you all day or? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of on a, on a
2: day to day basis. Gotcha. Yeah. If I put wax in on Monday and let's say I, I don't scrub my face in the shower with soap. Mm-hmm. I can still have a handlebar mustache that's waxed on Tuesday after a shower, even. Cool. So, but so it's been good wax. So that's why I use it. Yeah. You know.
1: Well, the look suits you. But, yeah.
2: Well, I tell you, most people that know me now probably wouldn't know me without it. Quite frankly, because I've had it, I've had it for probably twenty-five
1: years. So. <laughs> very cool yeah
0: yeah so kip
2: where are you joining us from this evening you're in montana right uh uh, yeah yeah right here in my house sitting at my desk so yep yeah just outside of bozeman montana just outside of bozeman montana yep guys get any snow flurries yet this um, year uh we haven't had any snow here in the bottom yet but there's i think two different weekends there was snow in the mountains around but it only lasted a day or so but we're supposed to get two to three inches here in town this weekend and then they're supposed to get six to eight inches up in the mountains so and it's time you know the latter part of october first november we're damn sure getting snow in this country so but we've been we've had a beautiful fall though it's been you know we've had 60 and 70 degree days and we've had we've had two hard frosts here at my house And I sit at about 5,600 feet. So,
1: but. Good deal. And you said um, you're you're riding horses for the public now?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing it now for 20 some years.
1: Yeah. Gotcha. So. So you must enjoy it then if you stuck with it that long. Well, it's yeah i i do you know
2: i like i told people years ago and i still tell people this i'd ride horses for free if i could find somebody to pay my bills you know yeah (laughs) because i like it that much i mean i crave getting out of bed in the morning excuse me i crave getting out of bed in the morning because i know what i'm going to get to do
1: so yeah yeah that's awesome i as Mm -hmm. someone who uh Just kind of made the career switch to doing that full-time. If I'm still doing this 20 years from now, I hope I still have that kind of zeal about it. So that's pretty awesome.
2: (laughs) Well, let me just tell you this, Joe, word of advice. You're going to go through some pretty big ebbs and flows where everything just went right that day and things are great and your horses did well and you're feeling good. And the next day it's going to crash and burn and you're gonna to wanna to sell your saddle and kill all the horses that you've been riding, <laughs> don't do it though, Okay, it'll get better. <laughs> Trust me, I've had, not not so much anymore, but the first, the first four or five years I was doing it, I had a lot of days where I'd, I'd be done riding horses at 5.30, six o'clock at night, and I'd sit on the edge of the corral and bawl like a baby until well after dark, because the day sucked so bad and then the next day it was a like a brand new day it started over and everything went good and it was all it was all fine but mm. you know it's, there's definitely ebbs and flows to it without a doubt so
1: yeah yeah, yeah. that makes sense anything you're going <laughs> to pursue for that long a time is probably similar I'd imagine oh yeah things level out and you
2: kind of, you know one thing you'll kind of you'll kind of probably face at times if you're like me at all that you kind of get in a rut on maybe doing something particular or doing something in the same order or whatever. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Try not to get in that little bit of a rut, particularly if you ride a lot of horses by yourself, you know, you know, if you're riding horses with two or three other guys or something like that, or you got friends coming over, maybe you're helping somebody with a horse or whatever, you know, you tend not to do that. But if you ride by yourself day after day, you'll end up getting in a rut, you know, and that can be hard to get out of once in a while. So that makes just one more thing to keep in mind. (laughs) Yeah. I'll just
1: remember that
2: and everything else. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Buck says, remember everything I said and you'll be good to go. So. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, this is going to be
0: really fun to dive into all this and, uh, before we get too deep kip we ought to maybe you can tell people a little bit about who you are because we have a lot of different listeners and i think some of our listeners are going to know who you are and some might not and you've had kind of a cool life so far a cool journey into this and uh
2: i guess yeah. just kind of
0: let's <laughs> maybe you could highlight who you are and what you've done and then
2: we can get into some of that stuff and, um sure well i was born and raised in montana um Went to college here at MSU in Bozeman, Montana State University. Got a BS degree in animal production, livestock management, which is totally antiquated now because technology has advanced so much. So it's no more than a piece of paper for me, but it's something that I finished. So that's a good thing. And I paid for it in full. Thank you very much. Unlike all the lazy bastards now that are getting deferments on their loans and all that stuff through our nice federal government. Uh, but anyway, then I actually I actually was working for an outfit when I was a kid, cleaning stalls and mowing lawns and all kind of stuff. And that fella and his wife both knew and went to college with Branham. And Kevin had been to quite a few of Buck's clinics and was definitely using the ray hunt method to start colts and all that kind of stuff. They showed horses for the public in the AQHA world. Um, so that was kind of my first introduction to this style of horsemanship, if you will, was back in 1985. And then, uh, when I graduated from high school, I had no intentions of going to college, but uh, I was working on a ranch in central Montana and, uh, the girlfriend I had at the time apparently sent my name into Montana state and the boss found out that I got accepted to college and he told me he was going to fire me if I didn't go to college and I was like, "Well, that's no big deal. I'll just go down the road, get another ranch, you know, get another ranch job." And he's like, "No," He's like, "I I know a few people, and you won't be able to get a ranch job in the state of Montana." And I was like, "You're you're kind of full of shit, Jerry." I didn't tell him that, but that's what I was thinking. So anyway, I did end up coming to college. Long story short, a four year degree in seven and a half years. Yeah, what what do you think his reasoning was? What
0: do you think his reasoning was to send, want you to go to college to work there?
2: Oh, because because they were doing some innovative stuff with with uh, embryo transfer work and breeding stock and that kind of stuff. They had a purebred herd, they had a commercial herd, they AI, they AI'd about a hundred head of cows. Um, you know, so they they were kind of trying to be pretty innovative on a real small scale. You know, it was just a, a family ranch here in central Montana. Um, but they were kind of on the cutting edge at the time of, of things like that. So he wanted me to go get an education so I could come back and, and work for him, you know? Well, long story short, I went to college and they switched from a quarter system to a semester system, kind of right in my middle of my career, as far as being a college student. So I stayed out of the fall semester for two fall semesters in a row. Cause it started school right in the middle of my summer, you know? So, so I didn't go to school and that's, and then I got kicked out twice because of my grades because I was on financial aid. So, you know, I was a, I was a bit of a rebel back in those days, I suppose. I went to class. I never missed a class, but, uh, uh, I was done with school pretty much every, every semester and quarter by three o'clock in the afternoon. And then it was downtown, you know? So, and then after dark, the music started at bars. So you'd go dancing. So that was pretty straightforward. Anyway, I got done with college in the fall of 95. And, uh, I was, I went to work on a, on a cow outfit in the south, southwest corner of Montana. And in that interim, while I was going to college in the summertime, I worked on a dude outfit here in Montana. And at that time, they were having Buck Brandman come up and do cl- horsemanship clinics in the fall. And that's when I first met Buck. And over the years, that guest ranch during the summer months, because that's when Brandman was in the country, during the summer months, they'd send me with a trailer load of horses to the clinics. And then I'd come back to the ranch on Monday or Tuesday and play dude string cowboy. And then the next weekend, I'd go to the next the next clinic, you know. So for about a month and a half through the summer months, I'd go to Buck's clinic. So I got to know him fairly well and that kind of thing and whatever. Um, And then uh, in December of 95 is when I graduated from college. And he had gone to Australia in January of 95, the first time. And he was going back again in 96. And I always wanted to go down there. So I called him just on a whim and said, hey you mind if I tag along with you when you go to Australia? And he's like, oh, heck no, man. I'll give you my travel agent's name and number and we'll make it work. So I spent a month with him in Australia in 96. And then as luck would have it, I actually went to work for him that spring as well. Cause Paul Dietz, who the guy was, that was working for him at that time needed to go home. Cause his dad had kind of come into some ill health and that kind of thing. And whatnot. So I traveled with him for about three and a half months, the spring of 96. then I came back to Montana and I worked outside on a, on a real cow outfit. It was cowboying for about a year and a half. And then that outfit decided to sell out. So I quit before they sold out and got another ranch job there in that same country. And in the meantime, Braneman called me. It was the 17th of October, quite honestly. And asked if I was wanted to go back to work for him because Paul was leaving to go out on his own and that kind of thing. So long story short, I spent five and a half years with Buck from '98 through the spring of 2003, and then uh, came back to Montana here and uh, was riding horses primarily for a for a private paint horse breeder. He had about 15 broodmares and had a really nice black and white paint style and bred all those mares every year. So he had a built-in factory. So it worked out good. If I wasn't riding two and three-year-olds, I was kind of kind of hacking around on six and seven-year-old horses. And in between, they'd be halter breaking weanlings or whatever it was and all the stuff. So that worked out well. And then I went to a Brandwin clinic and met my first wife. And one thing led to another. We got married in 04. I moved to the Midwest, a little town called Griswold, Iowa, which is about 40 40 miles east of Council Bluffs. And I spent pretty near 15 years there riding horses for the public. We had a business there and that kind of thing. She's a professional dressage rider. So I rode about every kind of warm blood you could imagine, in addition to a lot of quarter horses as well. But uh, most of those horses went on to be English sport horses of some kind. So, and then that, unfortunately that deal went South and I moved back to Montana here in November at 20 and I've been, been here since and still riding horses for the public and doing my thing. So cool. And I, I do do a few clinics around the country through the summer months. I kind of got roped into that by doing, by riding a horse for a gal when I was living in Iowa there. And she made me do a clinic there in Iowa. And then there was a few folks from California that had been around the Brandman clinics when I worked for him that wanted me to come down there and do clinics and stuff. And actually Buck encouraged me to do it, even though there was a gazillion guys wanting to be horse whisperers and clinicians. Um, Cause that was back in the horse whisperer days. But uh, anyway, one thing led to another and I've, I've built up quite a few different clientele and, and clinic clinics venues since that time and whatever and then i still maintain and ride horses here at home so i make a comfortable living i'm not getting rich but i'm fat and happy and so are my horses and that's all that
1: matters <laughs> so <laughs> good deal that's awesome man yeah so
0: yeah that sums up kind of yeah. where you've been huh kind of counts for kip fladland for the last couple yeah. years yeah pretty much do you um pretty much do you enjoy doing clinics do you enjoy working with people in groups like that you obviously are a great speaker and i mean it's, yeah yeah uh, is it I, has it kind of embellished your life does it add
2: to your life in a good way oh without a doubt ben yeah yeah i really enjoy doing the clinic thing um you know just because i get around a, a bigger number of people get to see a larger variety of horses go and and get to help people get better with their horses you know and like I was listening to one of your podcasts I can't remember now who it was but it was probably Branneman but it could have been Ricky too but watching those horses go around the arena in my own clinics you know I think to myself well what would I be doing if I was riding that horse or what do I need to tell that person to get done what I'm seeing needs to be done, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I really enjoy that. And it's really intriguing to me. I can remember years ago when I'd sit on the fence and I'd, you know, when I was working for Buck, I'd take a water or a coffee out to him and I'd strategically asked him, okay, I'm going to watch the Bay horse go around the arena. And this is what I'm looking for, you know? And he'd be like, all right. So I'd, I'd go back and sit on the fence and, and the bay horse would come by maybe. And, and let's say I was trying to figure out what lead they were trotting on, you know, not just loping, but trotting. And I'd call out right or left and he'd give me that look like, oh my God, you know, as if I'm never going to get it. (laughs) And then about one out of one out of 20 I'd get, you know, and then the next week I'd do it again on a different horse at a different clinic and I'd get 10 out of 20. And then the next week I'd do it and get five out of twenty. So it took me a long time but but watching horses go around like that is really intriguing to me because I get to see a large variety. I mean here at home I only ride, only I keep eight on the books a month and that's plenty for me to get around in a day because I don't have any flunkies working for me. Nobody saddles and catches horses. Nobody grooms them. I do all of it myself in addition to doing chores in the morning and in the even, evening. So Eight is plenty for me to get around. So when I get around those clinics, you know, there's always a bigger number of horses. So that's, that's kind of cool. So. Yeah. You for sure see that with Buck and his
0: clinics, the awareness that he has for the horses and the riders and everything going on, remembering people's names. And that's gotta be a huge exercise in self-awareness, remembering just that that's gotta be quite a, an exercise to always be able to put yourself through each week for him. And then for anyone else who does these clinics just adds another dimension to your horsemanship
2: journey. Yeah, there's quite a bit going on typically. I mean, my, my clinic deal isn't near, isn't even half of what Braneman's is, of course, but, but, you know, I mean, I get, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15, 20 riders, maybe if I'm lucky, (laughs) but, uh, you know, you, I mean, I wouldn't say I have a formula for remembering names or, or anything like that, or, or, uh, have a method of studying that I continually use because every scenario is different, you know, and every day at that particular clinic is going to be different. So you kind of just got to deal with whatever comes up really, you know, but you, you definitely develop a knack for for a few of those things like having your head on a swivel, you know, because <laughs> I can have horses that are going behind me and if the sound is not right, I'm spinning around, finding out what's going on because it's probably going to hell in a handbasket.
1: basket. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know,
2: but you, you develop that kind of stuff over time, you know, so that's not mm. really a big deal. but
1: So, you know, this, this might be a little bit of a cliche question. Um, but with all that, and, you know, given your background being kind of a ranch cowboy and everything, um, what, I don't know the way you talk about it. Um, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about this stuff and it's like, there's this moment where they decide to change up what they're doing. And then they're going to kind of embrace the like Ray hunt style of, horsemanship but it sounds like you were almost like around that from the beginning really
2: oh n- n- no not at all joe not oh, okay at all. when i was a kid and you can edit this part out of the podcast later on when i was a kid it was totally normal to tie up a hind foot put a blindfold on put a saddle on when they quit bucking put the blindfold back on step on take the blindfold off and do your thing and as soon yeah. as they quit bucking in the round pin Throw the gate open and go to work. I mean, that was the deal. I didn't get on this what what everybody knows now as the Ray Hunt, you know, Buck Branham and style of horsemanship and stuff. I didn't really get onto that until I ended up going to that dude outfit, and I was I was 19 years old. Yeah. But I've been riding horses for a lot longer than that, and whatnot. not, and and come to find out, barely getting by. You know, I mean, God protects the innocent without a doubt because, yeah, because I've seen and done some things that I'm totally ashamed of now because I know it wasn't right. But back in those days, I didn't know any better, you know? So, um, but when i literally, the second day I saw Braneman, Sunday was the day he arrived at that guest ranch and Monday was the first day of the clinic. Well, when he showed up on Sunday, I was not impressed. He looked like a GQ cowboy that just stepped out of a Marlboro magazine ad, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is going to suck. I remember turning to my best friend and saying, have fun. I'm going to take dude rides all week, you know, but then the very next morning I watched him catch his horses and he did things with his horse bareback in a halter Riding it from the corral where we were keeping them up to his horse trailer, which was probably a hundred yards up a slight slope, with basketball-sized boulders scattered out all over. I mean, you couldn't have rode a straight line if you wanted to. And he did things with that horse bareback in a halter that I'd never seen before. And looking back now, you know, roll the hind, bring the front through, lift up on the rein, the horse bridled up. You know, got a soft feel. It wasn't anything particularly extravagant by my standards now, but back then it was extremely impressive to me. So I remember running up to the head wrangler and saying, Hey, um, I've changed my mind. Is there any way I can ride in the clinic today? <laughs> so I was hooked. I was hooked instantly because I'd been riding horses all my life and, and knew that I was lacking something. Cause like I say, I, I'd never seen anybody do that with a horse, you know, now, you know, I didn't grow up on a big ranch or anything like that, but I've been riding horses my whole life and had worked on some ranches and, and, uh, you know, branded calves and gathered cattle in the fall and took cows to grass and all that kind of stuff and been around at the time, what I thought were cowboys come to find out they were They were just ranch guys that rode horses because it facilitated the deal, you know. Um, So, but I, but when I first saw Buck ride that horse back to his trailer, um, that, that got me hooked right off and I've been chasing it ever since. So, and that was a, that was the fall of 91. So.
1: Gotcha. That's awesome. Yeah. It's funny how people have it seems like anyone who's pursued this for any amount of time has a story like that.
2: Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, and anybody that, that pursues a passion of some kind has probably got that, you know, when it, when the trigger tripped inside of them, mm-hmm. you know, for a lack of a better way to describe it. So.
0: Yeah. Before you had that moment, and you kind of changed the way, your trajectory, working with horses. Were you already planning on riding horses for the public and doing what you do now? Or did you have something else in mind for a living?
2: Oh, God. N- no, not at all. <laughs> no, I wanted to go be a cowboy. You know, yeah. I, I mean, even after I graduated from college, you know, I mean, having a piece of paper and supposedly being educated and all that kind of stuff, I just wanted to go be a cowboy. And I still want to be a cowboy. Um, But, you know, and the the deal with riding horses for the public, it kind of blossomed on its own, quite honestly. Because the fella, when I graduated from college, um, the place that I worked on, he had a few horses and that kind of thing, and I was riding them. And then uh, he kind of let me ride a few for the public of his friends, you know, and that kind of thing. So that kind of opened that up. And then I went then I went to work back to work for Brandman. And the only reason I quit traveling working for Buck is because I wanted to go out and perpetuate the skills that I had learned for longer than the three months in the winter time. So that was the only reason I quit working for Buck. Um is cause I wanted to ride horses for longer than three and a half months in the winter. So, so when I went to Vern Smith, I got that opportunity because he let me ride all of his colts and then, and then let me bring in outside horses as well. And that, that's kind of how it blossomed into doing the clinic thing. You know, I'd ridden a few horses for the public and those people wanted help and, you know, they begged and pleaded. And I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to be a clinician. I don't want anything part of that. Because back in those days, it was like, you know, being an ambulance chaser lawyer, or, uh, you know, a used car salesman, not too many people look up to those kind of professions. (laughs) So I didn't want to be a horse clinician at all, but these folks in Iowa really wanted me to help them with their horses. And then a couple of gals from California called me and, and they had been around me when I worked for Buck and they wanted me to come to California and do clinics. And I'm like, man, I don't want to, you know? So actually the one gal called Braneman and said, Hey, can you talk to Kip about coming to California to do a clinic? And he was like, well, I guess so. Yeah. And I actually called him about it before he called me. And I asked him, I said, what do you think? And he goes, you'll be, you'll do fine. Go ahead. No big deal. So that's, that's kind of how the clinic thing came to be as well. It was just kind of by happenstance really. So, but I had no, no intentions of, of being a clinician. And the only reason I got to riding horses for the public is because I had worked for Buck for those five years, you know? So that's kind of how it all came about. Um, and it's been good to me. Hell, I've, uh, you know, I've, heck, I've, I've traveled the world doing it. I mean, I've been to Canada, been to Germany, been to Holland, been to Australia twice now. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I've, and I've been all over the United States, so it's all good. You know, I enjoy it. So,
1: yeah. That's great. So when you said you wanted to ride more, um, you know, Ben and I have all obviously been around Buck and this a lot less time than you have. Was it like are these new guys who are working for him? Do they, um, not like, did you not get to bring a horse on the road like they do now?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Back in the old days when I worked for him, we had a, we had a one ton dually pickup and a, a four horse stock trailer. We stayed in hotels, you know, and it was way different than it is now without a doubt. Um, You know, I, you know, much like what Jacob did this summer, I did set up the sound system. um, You know, I fed, fed the horses, saddled Buck's horses when he asked me to, you know, now it's expected. He steps out of his trailer and maybe or maybe not puts his bridle on and goes to the arena. Back when I worked for him, unless he told me to saddle his horse, I didn't saddle it because that just wasn't the deal back in those days. Um, and there was never any room for, for me to bring a horse. I didn't get to take my own saddle until the second year I worked for him. Hmm. So, and you know, it definitely, it definitely grew into a, a better thing. And maybe, maybe he's letting those guys take horses on the road now. Cause they're better hands than I was. I don't know, or the better hands than I am maybe, but, uh, the big reason was back in those days, there just wasn't room. It just, sure, just didn't accommodate extra, extra horses. Um, but, uh, you know, the, th- by the third year that I'd worked for him, he was turning me loose on a lot of horses. I got to ride a lot of horses in the clinics and you know, that last year I worked for him, it was pretty much standard procedure. I'd take my saddle to the arena fence first thing in the morning and just wait. And he'd be like, Kip. And I'm like, I'm on it. I got it. And I'd go work with Susie Ann's horse, you know, until either the end of the clinic or he said it looked good and give it back to her, you know. So he afforded me the opportunity to get on a lot of horses. But, you know, it was only the the three or four days of the clinic. And maybe it was only 20 minutes on that first or second day or whatever it was. So when I quit working for him, it was definitely so I could ride horses for a longer period of time. Sure. So,
1: and you yeah. could be more of an artist than just some guy who defuses bombs every week. Yeah. Yeah. Being the hit man.
2: Yeah. I, I don't want to say it got old because I still, I still would enjoy that. If I showed up at a Branham clinic next week and he said, Kip, get your saddle. I'd be all over it without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, being the, being the hitman for the first 10 or 15 or 30 minutes or whatever it was, it, it, it goes without saying there's a lot better things happening when you can ride them for a longer period of time.
1: Absolutely. So time is the gift. Yeah. Timing, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So that that's basically all i i wanted you to say is is these young guys they don't know how good they have it now
2: well (laughs) there's no doubt they work their ass off i don't get me wrong you know Uh, they 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 do work because oh of course but but yeah they they got it pretty cush compared to what i did (laughs) because there was braneman had a bag phone in the truck that was before handheld cell phones ever come out you know the the brick in a bag that's what we had in the truck well it only worked in certain places literally so there was a lot of days i'd spent an entire day on the hotel room telephone plugged into the wall with a with a rotary dial on it in some hotels that's well before you guys were around but calling calling the next town to make the hotel arrangements calling the next feed store to make sure they had feed for us calling the next vet to make sure the paperwork on the horses is all up to snuff, you know, calling the mechanic shop somewhere if we needed anything done with the truck or trailer or whatever I scheduled and did all that stuff. I mean, you know, the only thing I didn't do for Brandman was, was take care of his personal laundry or pay for supper. <laughs> <laughs> that that was it. I, I did everything else, you know, and nowadays those guys can sit on their phone and in twenty minutes have things lined up over the across the country, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But back when I worked for him, you didn't have that choice. You had to sit in a hotel room and and hopefully be able to get a hold of everybody you needed to get a hold of.
1: So Yeah. Gosh, that must be yeah. a logistical nightmare trying yeah. to figure all that out. Uh you know, it wasn't that big a deal, but
2: you when you first get into it it seems overwhelming. Yeah. But you know, if you do it for nine months out of the year, for five years, it's not so bad. <laughs> I
1: got you. That's cool, man. That, that's stuff that honestly wouldn't have even occurred to me just growing up in a different time period, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yep. Yeah.
2: The technology thing has changed so much now, you know, I mean, like doing the iPod thing and playing the music at the clinics and that kind of stuff. We didn't have any of that stuff going on when I worked for him. They didn't even have that stuff, you know. So don't get me wrong. I enjoy having the music, but it it wasn't like that when I worked for him.
1: <laughs> Did you guys have music back? Which in the is day? all right?
2: Oh yeah, we had a <clears throat> eleven disc CD changer underneath the seat in the truck. Oh. So we could listen to to hours of music without interruption of any kind. But it was on a CD player in the back seat of the truck, you know. Gotcha. I mean, so, but there wasn't any there wasn't any music in the arena or anything like that during a warm up or at lunchtime or nothing like that. Yeah.
1: No. Which is a staple so, now.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. They don't. He doesn't even come to the arena unless he can hear the music playing. Yeah. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like WWE. They're playing yeah. him in. <laughs> oh yeah oh definitely yep yep so
0: did he have a hobby back then what was he doing then during
2: the week you know he um the big deal that he got onto when i worked for him was the fly fishing thing probably you know everywhere we went particularly through the summer months it was you know on days off he'd spend it fly fishing so whether we were in upstate michigan here in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, um, you know, he, I don't think he fly fished at all in California, maybe in one or two places in Arizona. Um, but you know, in Michigan, like I say, Montana, Idaho, or Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, um, they were pretty big fishing places, but that's where he was in the summertime, you know, so it kind of fit um, but that was his big that was his big outlet back in those days. Um, he didn't get onto the golf thing till well after I would, had left him so did you ever get into fly fishing some oh I fly fished a little bit when I was <clears throat> excuse me when I was a kid but I never went fishing with him because I knew that was kind of his time you know. Because, like I say, back in those days, we were in a pickup together in a hotel room together, ate three meals a day together, all that kind of stuff. So there was there was a few times where I was like, you know what, you go do your fishing thing. I'll see you when you get back. So it was kind of his his way to decompress, so to speak. Yeah. You know, that makes
0: sense. So you talk about all this traveling and, you know, when I first got around the whole Random and clinic deal seemed really exciting. You know, traveling around, you watch the documentary, you just think, man, you want to be like Buck. And in the <laughs> back of my head, I just figured when you get old someday, well, not, oh, you know, when you grow up, you have some experience, you should be like Buck. That's probably two or three years ago. And then more and more gradually, like the weight of what he does and, and even guys like you do the traveling and the working with people. And then, like, the time, because I'm here with Bill Barnes, and we travel a bit, and we'll go maybe two, three, four weeks at a time. And a lot of times, I'll drive his his rig, and he'll fly in. Sure. And you do all this right. driving, and, man, I'm telling you what, by the end of three or four weeks, and we're not even having <laughs> to work, right? We're just traveling, and you're participating in the clinics, and it's a lot of fun even seeing all your friends. It's so great to get home oh, sure. and ride your own horse and just be home. That I'm like, golly! Oh yeah! Why the hell did I ever think that would be a good idea to be a <laughs> clinician? And it makes me really <laughs> thankful that he's done it. Like every time I go to a clinic, I think, sheesh, he's been doing this for thirty years or probably more. Like holy well, Forty cow. years now. Yeah, yeah. Every week, at like thirty clinics a year. I don't know anybody who could do that because I have a hard time well, traveling was- for four or five weeks just having fun participating <laughs> in the clinics.
2: <laughs> right. And I didn't right. I
0: don't think I'd have that appreciation without doing some of that traveling and going and watching all the time and you just think, wow, that's a that's a labor of love.
2: Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's some say some people would probably say it's a sickness, quite frankly. But <laughs> you know, there's there's and like you have found, there's definitely a thrill to be able to travel around and get to see the country and like you say, see all your friends at the clinic and all that kind of stuff. But it takes it takes a special person to do do a day in and day out year after year and let's not forget that when i worked for him we left home on the on the 3rd or the 5th of february and although we were back through sheridan a handful of times throughout the calendar year we didn't get done with the clinic the clinic schedule that calendar year until maybe 2 weeks before thanksgiving Hmm. So he did, I mean, in 1998 he did 50, 50 he did 50 clinics. Um, but some of those clinics were back to back in the same location. So it's not like we were traveling all that much on some of those places. but in '99 and in 2000, he did 47 clinics and 49 clinics respectively, you know. And back in those days, he was riding the colts himself. So in, in 99, he took eight colts. And then in 2000, he only took six. Um, But uh, in half of the clinics we did on the schedule, all had a colt class. And some of them would even have an evening cow working class. So a lot of times he'd, you know, he'd be working from nine o'clock in the morning till 7 30 at night because of you know that afternoon you know the, the horsemanship class would go from one thirty to 4 30 and then at five o'clock he'd start the cow working and go till 7 30. So it he was doing a lot more clinics back then than he is now now he's still working his ass off and all the stuff of course but um it it was a it was a heck of a lot more grueling back in those days. Cause you know, you're just driving a one ton dually pickup and you're staying at a hotel all the time. I mean, so he, he's been at it for a long time without a doubt, but that's why he's cutting back next year and, and that kind of thing. And, and I'm really glad he is because he'll hopefully be able to preserve his body for the next 20 years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and
0: I brought that up kind of to to ask you Kip, because guys like you, you might have a little smaller clinic trail right now, but do you see picking that up over, over the rest of your life or slowing down a little bit or or what do you
2: think uh, you're going to do? N- no, I'd kind of like to do a few more clinics around. You know, people always ask me, well, why don't you come do a clinic at our place and all that kind of stuff? Okay, that's, I'd be happy to. Now you got to get enough people to justify me coming to your house to do it you know because I don't unless it's a totally strictly a private thing I don't just have a day fee that people have to pay. I charge individual clientele just like what Buck does at his clinics because that's who I learned from let's I mean I'll be honest with you so you know if you don't get the the, the minimum number of people it's not going to work for me to come to your place because I make money staying home because I got eight head of horses that I'm riding so if it's not going to be a, a a little bit of a more money maker for me to go, I'll stay home and be totally content, you know. But I'm happy to go because, I, like I said earlier, I'm I'm definitely definitely enjoy doing the clinic thing and and that kind of thing and helping people with their horses and and seeing people be successful after you help them, you know, whether it be over the course of the the three day clinic or the five minutes you took to explain something extensively or, or helped them with whatever it might've been or something like that. That's really rewarding to see people get excited about being successful, you know, and that's cool. So that's kind of how I look at it. I, you know, I, I definitely enjoy probably doing more clinics than, than I am right now, but, uh, finding people that want to sponsor them, can be difficult at times and then let's face it it costs a lot of money and there's a lot of good guys out there that are doing the clinic thing so money gets stretched pretty thin you know so time will tell whether it happens
1: or not yeah well there you go there's a plug on this podcast anyone anyone who's listening to this and wants kip to come to their hometown
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got to get enough people or he's not coming. Yeah, there you, yeah.
1: Go. you just You just people, give Kip a call and, yeah. and get all the people around up. You can make it happen. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have something kind of along the clinic lines. And, you know, from your description of your uh, earlier days, it, it sounds like you uh, have, you know, been – you're pretty you can be socially active when you want to um have did you struggle with the clinic deal like you go there and it's like the weekend and like every weekend it's everyone else's vacation but you're there to work you know what i mean because i've talked yeah are you
2: I've talked about that. Are you referring to when I worked for Buck or when I'm doing my own clinic? Well,
1: you know, either way, but like, you know what I mean? It's just like people, it, it's one of those things where like, you're there to do a job and I'm, I'm sure you're like, um, you know, you're professional and want to do all this stuff, but people, you know, people, they want to go out to dinner and they want to chat with you forever and ever. Cause oh, it's, yeah. it's their vacation really, you know? Right. and yeah, I'm sure, at least yeah. at the start, there's kind of a, a learning curve to all that because you are kind of like, I don't know, the local rock star, really.
2: Well, kind of. I think I'm going to get screwed here, fellow. My phone's going dead. God oh, dang it. Oh, boy. Anyway, um, yeah, that's going to screw up my, my earphone thing because I only can plug my earphones into the bottom of the phone where I plug my charger in. Yeah,
0: so, I know. I don't know why iPhones okay. don't have a, a separate jack. You think they could figure that out? Because
2: they want to stick it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Anyway, to answer your question, Joe, you know when when I was working for Buck, it was kind of standard procedure. You'd go to supper with a handful of the clinic people, uh, but then you, when it was time to go to bed, you went home, went to bed. I mean, because yeah. like you say, you got to get up and work the next mm-hmm. day. And for me, doing my own clinics, I I do make it a point to at least have dinner with the clinic sponsor at least one night, mm-hmm. without a doubt. And inevitably, it ends up being more nights than that. But certainly, with one night, and then I make one night where I go to dinner with some of the some of the clinic participants, because a lot of a lot of participants that ride in my clinics have been riding with Brandman for years, so I've I've known them for a long time. Um, so they're friends, without a doubt. But uh, there's always one night at my clinics where I say, no,' nope, I'm, I'm going to the hotel, see you guys in the morning or I don't do the social thing at right. all because I you know you talk all day long and then you just tell rewrite stories all night long. That's no fun. So I make a point to <laughs> to have at least one night
1: to myself. Yeah. So yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, and, and that you know obviously, you know, Buck's learned to do that, so I figured you'd learn that from Buck. But that—that that was something I thought about, um, especially as you know, Ben and I have got to know the people that work with Buck and gotten to know Buck better himself. It's like, man, there's a lot of oh, people sure. at these clinics. Like, if it—it it comes from a good place, but like, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile, and you know, keep you out there oh, forever. Yeah. Yep, and you have to and, kind of balance and that. Not-
2: not with bad intentions or anything right. it's just what that's that's what they're interested in you know so it makes it tough without a doubt yeah uh, yeah you
0: know. yeah hey Kip we don't want but. your phone to completely run out of battery cuz if it does then your footage won't upload so if you need if you're getting real low within 5% oh, or so sh- we should
2: get you plugged in and then we could see what it sounds like oh, I'm at, we can see what we got to do I'm at 19% right now but I could plug it in and find out what it's going to do okay I got my cord right here. Problem. Give it a whirl. So I'll I'll unplug and see what happens. Okay. So there I can hear you guys. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah. We can hear you. Yeah, we can hear you.
2: It's not going to be as good a quality obviously.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be all right as long as your phone doesn't get scratched or bumped or moved too much.
1: Yeah. Should be. It honestly doesn't sound that much worse. Um, then with the headphones in, so no, I think that'll be fine.
2: Well, we'll have, you guys will have to figure it out when you edit it, your deal or whatever. So, yeah.
0: I think your voice is even has a little more resonance to it. It's, it's nice.
1: Yeah, I'm sure we're All good. Right. Well, no big deal. <laughs> All right. Here's a question while I'm thinking about it. What's that painting behind you?
2: That is a painting by a friend of mine named. Moni Heil. Okay. Uh, that's her artist name. Her real name is actually, well, that is a real name, but her married name is Moni Howard. She and Steve Howard sponsor the Eagle Colorado Clinics. Gotcha. Um, of, of Bucks. And that's Branneman and a horse named Stedman that he rode years ago that Moni painted of Buck and Stedman there at Sheridan at Buck's Place. And. A horse client and a dear friend of mine bought that painting from Moni and then gifted it to me. Oh, that's cool so it's kind of kind of the centerpiece of artwork here in my house so
1: that's awesome yeah that's terrific man
2: yeah I got I two or three big pictures like that so yeah that's kind of cool so,
0: gotcha I remember from being around you, Kip that you had a lot of gear. You had a lot of nice tack. Are you one of those guys or do you use every bit of it or do you have some of it that you're kind of saving for later on and you're stocking it while they're making it before, you know, we lose some of these makers that we've had for years?
2: No, no. I, I use every bit of it. I, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, people ask me all the time, well, do you braid rawhide or, you know, do you work leather or whatever, you know, kind of a cowboy thing. And I'm like, Yeah, I can braid, but I wouldn't want to show you, (laughs) uh, and not, not making it. So I got some, I got some nice gear, not as much as I'd like to have, but I got some.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I thought about that the other day. Yeah. I like doing projects and I'd love to learn all the skills, but I like having things made by other people. And if I had stuff all made by myself, I would just look at it and see the mistakes. But at least if I can see someone else's Billy. work, it's art. Their mistake is art. It's beautiful. Right. My mistake is going to bug the crap out of me every time I look at it.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I got a couple of get-down ropes that I braided years ago and and uh, that kind of thing. Real simple stuff. But pretty much everything I, I have is made by somebody else. You know, I still got the first McCarty I ever had. And it was literally a chunk of rope that I that I cut from the spool of rope at the hardware store, because um, I grew up riding with split reins. I never saw a McCarty in my life till I first time I saw Buck Branaman, and I thought, well, I better get one of those because look how good he is, you know. <laughs> so, but I still have that McCarty. I would never show it to anybody.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of my first McCarty, and I can say it on here because I don't think my dad listens to this, but I went, (laughs) he he was a certified tree um, climber at one point, an arborist or whatever they call it, and he had some of the nicest tree climbing ropes money can buy, you know, and they're two, 300 feet long, and I cut a nice 22 foot length off of that thing, burned the ends, put a leather popper on it, and I just kind of made the end look like it used to, and. And I just never brought it around the house. I made sure he never saw it because he would have recognized that piece of rope. That was oh, my course, first yeah. one off the end of his tree climbing no. rope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. He never used that stuff much anyway. So
2: It's funny what you do in desperation, though, you know. I mean, I was I was totally convinced that I was going to find a McCarty in downtown Livingston when I went to town that weekend to get a, get a McCarty after the clinic well nobody even knew what the hell a mccarty was much less had one you know so i went to the hardware store and and unrolled 22 feet of it and cut it off and the guy said well you're not going to get a lot done with that and i said don't you worry about what i'm doing with this rope and i (laughs) took it home and made mccarty up
0: there you go somebody was trying to offer horsemanship advice at the hardware store
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You can get it from all angles.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But is that something you think about with this gear about stocking up any, any certain items from makers who are still young and they're, well, they're not young, but they're not retired yet. And you want to get it from them before they quit making it. So you stock up on shaps or something that's being made out. there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'd probably be, be about like uh riattas i you know you could never have too many of those uh shafts although most of the shafts i have i actually wear all of them and they're all at about the same stage of wear um but i know where i can get more pretty readily so i'm not too concerned about that (laughs) yeah but saddles i'll collect saddles although i don't i don't go to every custom saddle maker in the world just to get one of theirs i pretty much stick to two or three different guys quite honestly um you know and if i could afford it i'd have a whole string of ernie marsh bridle bits but i can't afford that so i don't have that but <laughs> um but everything i got i pretty much so i wouldn't say i stockpile any of it but i have I have some extra Reattas, Um and they're, you know, they're pretty, pretty nice ropes. So, but I'll be, I'll be using them before too long. So
1: yeah, good deal.
2: I any gear that I buy or procure and then don't use. I'm not that way. And I'm not, I'm not a good guy to trade with. I don't trade my stuff. Like I said, I still got the first McCarty I ever had. Well, you know, to some extent, it's got some sentimental value to it. It's only a $25 piece of rope, but you couldn't buy it for me for $250 just because of the sentimental thing, you know. But I don't trade well either. Yeah. I'd I'd happily pay you for it, but I'd trade you something that I have because I probably worked pretty hard to get all the crap I got and all the other stuff cost me a hell of a lot of money so i'm not going to trade it so hmm. so consequently i'm a collector <laughs> yeah without a doubt but it's all good you know? when i die somebody's going to be able to make a hell of a lot of money selling all my crap so, <laughs> so yeah well
0: i'm going to come to that sale guaranteed if i'm still yeah, walking no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the uh here's something i want to ask you because there's a lot of people I could ask this to, but I never have. So I'll get a definitive answer, hopefully. Is there a certain level a horse should be at, traditionally, before you pack a Riata on your saddle?
2: Uh, if if there is, I've never heard it. Okay. I mean, I have broke this spring on a three-year-old Philly colt that had about, oh, probably 90 days on her, I suppose. And I wrote every calf that, at that, on that day at that band with a Riata, you know, she's just in snap a snapple bit. I mean, so I, I would have to say no, it, there is some, there is some unspoken rules though, about how you go about using a Riata and some unspoken rules about how you care for it. But really is as, as far as how far along your horse is before you start roping with a riata off of that horse if like say if there's rules on that i've never heard of them
0: okay Hmm. would there be kind of a stigma against a guy who's not real handy or kind of a poor roper who's packing a riata and trying to rope with one would people kind of look at that like yeah that guy should be starting with a poly he shouldn't be out here with a riata
2: (laughs) um you know for me ben quite honestly i'd be like hey man you don't ever get to know how to use it without using it. So use it, you know, what the hell? Yeah. Now, if I saw you and I'll just use you and I as an example here, don't, don't take this the wrong way. But if I saw you dragging it through the gravel, I'd have to tell you something about that. Cause that's not right. I don't care if you're a world-class roper or a beginner, you don't do that period. You know, um, you know, there's, there's kind of some etiquette things with it that a younger guy or a lesser experienced person might have to be told because it's probably not wrote down in a book anywhere. Um, But, uh, you know, I got a, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I got a $1,300 Riata in my horse trailer that was built by Jake Brown before he went to Australia when he was still in Nevada, cowboying. It's a two-color Riata, and it's 50 feet long, six strands. And I was breaking it in, and I stranded it in three different places in about five seconds of each other. And I've never swung that rope yet because it's broke. And I was too embarrassed to send it back to Jake to get it fixed. So, you know, but that was... That was 17 years ago that I did that too. So I got a little more experience roping for Riata now. And as far as branding calves, and it's hard to rope with a poly anymore because roping for Riata is, is so much easier. Hmm. But you got to know how to run rope. You know, you got to know how to keep it off the ground so you step on it or so the cattle don't step on it. Um, you know, you, you got to take care of it a lot more so than with other kinds of ropes, without a doubt. And if guys aren't attentive to that, they're not going to be roping with a Riata for very long. Yeah.
1: Hmm. So they kind of weed themselves out almost if they don't have it going on.
2: Yeah. Say that again.
1: I I said, so, so if you're not super handy, it's almost like you kind of weed yourself out of roping with a Riata. Yeah,
2: pretty much. You should, you should, feel pretty confident roping with a poly and have a lot of experience at roping bigger cattle where you had to slide rope so your horse doesn't get jerked on before you start roping with Riata too much. Because you got to slide rope with a Riata even on a baby calf if you're doing it right, you know. Um, but there again, you could rope a 1,500-pound cow with a Riata and slide rope and be totally cool. No problem at all. Hmm. So, if like I say, if you're not really handy with a with a poly, you probably probably better stick to a poly till you get pretty confident. And then and then by all means, get you a good quality riata, and unfortunately you're going to have to spend some money, but get a good rope and practice with it, you know. And the best way to practice with it is go rope live cattle. So you can get them broke in by running them through, you know, the drilled holes on a fence post or a tree or whatever, or all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the old timer would say, oh, you got to have a pepper tree to do that. Or, you know, you got to rub it with beef tallow or you got to rub it with raw beef liver or, you know, you got to treat it with this wax or that cream or whatever it is. The best thing to do get a brand new one, go dunk it in the water tank till all the bubbles quit coming up and then go rope yearlings with it Hmm. and let that action of being around their neck, their hair and their sweat and their mud, their grease and mud and manure and all kind of stuff that's on their body. Get on the loop end of your rope. And then you break in the middle of it by dallying on your saddle horn and letting rope run. That's how you break them in. So, but like I say, you better better have your ducks in a row before you do that, because you can strand one pretty quick. So, and it's expensive if you don't know how to braid it back to fix it.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah, no so. kidding.
0: So, is that a skill that you learned yet? Or are you proficient at fixing a riata?
2: Oh hell, no! No way!
1: <laughs>
2: no, and, I, and I've tried several times. Cause I've broke a lot of them. (laughs) uh, No, I couldn't fix one to save my life. Yeah. man,
1: That's awesome. But
2: i met a guy this last spring in Oklahoma of all places. That is an unbelievable rawhide brailler. And I really want to get one of his ropes, but I know it's going to take a while. Cause he's a, he's a member of the TCA and I don't know if he even takes private orders anymore without it being, you know, a museum quality type of deal. Mm. But I spent about two and a half hours at his house gawking at all his, all his rawhide work. So I'm pretty sure he'd remember me if I called him, but I'd love to have one of his ropes cause they're beautiful and they're just, they're just regular old plain old, you know, kind of that buckskin colored rawhide but they are beautiful yeah but i want one really bad (laughs) so what were you going to say ben
0: i was going to say you know you said the best way is just to go ahead and break it in and use it and it seems that way with a lot of stuff people that don't use their gear um you know they're always cleaning it and polishing it and caterwalling about all this stuff and they don't just use it they just they don't ever get out there and whether it's rope with it or riding the saddle to break it in or whatever it is that they don't just use it. They spend a lot more time messing with it, trying to get it all fixed up and kind of artificially broke in.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm not that way. Yeah. I use the crap out of my stuff. I'm probably, I'm probably the opposite in the, in the other direction. I'd, I've got, I've got a saddle that I first got in 1996. I think I personally have cleaned it twice, and I've I've rode it so the so the the seat skirts right underneath your thigh before it drops down onto the fender, on both sides. Those are those are tissue paper thin. Hmm. I've I've rode that saddle that much, and I think I've cleaned it twice since 1996. So. I'm kind of bad that way. Wow.
1: Tell you what, one thing about (laughs) Ben and I being on the East Coast, like I I don't think you'd get away with that because I I don't know about you, Ben, but I feel like not so much cleaning, but at least here in like the Blue Ridge Mountains where it gets humid and then really dry and humid and really dry, like probably – You know, the saddle that I ride in all day, every day, um, every six months to a year, I've got to be pretty diligent about oiling it or the leather will just get real ruined.
2: When I lived in the Midwest, Joe, I, I would totally concur with you. When I lived in the Midwest, the saddles that I, the gear in general that I was using, I did, I did take care of quite a bit more diligently because hell, the mold grows on them overnight. Yeah, you know, I had a I had a climate controlled tack room that I stored my stuff in that I was using, um, but the mold still growed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in your guys' country, yeah, you got to take care of your stuff a little bit better. Yeah. Without without a doubt, not in this part of the country. You know, we're kind of high desert, pretty dry, relatively speaking. Heck, you you know. It's it's going to be more of a cleaning affair than it would be a an oiling affair. Yep. But I don't do either one.
1: <laughs> but you know, it's funny. It, not that I have a ton of gear or anything, but every maker I've ever talked to and, and like even like down to like the local guys that will like, you know, make, make a belt or something like just anyone who works with leather, they're like, yeah, you need to like anything I make, I want you to go ahead and use and use it a bunch, you know, like it, like people who make stuff, they prefer it that way. Um,
2: With that. Yeah. And and that's across the board. Rawhide, silver saddles, shaps. It does not matter. They would much rather see it need to be cleaned and, or need to have it repaired as opposed to see it, hanging on the wall absolutely with
0: that hey i think that probably is the same as you know if you're riding horses for the public right and you send a horse home that you've really put a lot of work into and then a year later you find out he's been eating grass doing nothing and it's sort of you know even though it's not your life and who cares it does kind of hurt it's kind of sad you're like man that was a nice horse and you
2: just let him eat grass for a year yep yeah yeah, that's a little bit disappointing. Unfortunately, though, that's one of the that's another one of those hoops that you've got to be able to willing to, to get through. You know, whether it's a horse that you really liked riding and you did a good job on it because of that reason, or it's just a, you know, kind of a piss head that you didn't enjoy riding and it didn't really come through like you maybe wanted it to, or you know that the person that you're sending it home to is not going to get along with it for whatever reason it's, you got to be able to get over that hurdle. I can ride your horse for you, but once you take it home, that's your responsibility. I can't do anything about that. I can't make you ride your horse. So when it's in my possession and let's say you come and want to ride it with my supervision. Oh yeah. I can make you ride it then, (laughs) but that horse goes home. I can't make you ride it. And if you turn it out, and then catch it in six months and you didn't do your homework on, on whatever level that homework scale is. And then it gets in a, in a jam and bucks you off or more than likely you fall off of it. And then you're going to blame me anyway. I know that. So go ahead. It's not my fault, but I know that you're going to blame me, but I'm, I'm over that part of my career.
1: Yeah. They'll, uh, they'll fall in love with you just as quick as they'll fall out of love with you. That's how clients can be
2: without a doubt.
0: <laughs> well, I imagine it could go the other so, way for the horse too, because he's a thinking living being, he might've think, you know, he might've got a good deal, not being jerked on for a year or two in his mind. So I get that. He might be like, sweet. Well, they don't ride me. I'm that, cool with that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, just leave me alone, heck. I'd be happy to spend another year out here eating crabs. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> Love it.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think there's any any of them that pop out of mama with aspirations of being a bridal horse. I think they just like hanging out.
2: <laughs> well, probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, certainly not some some dressage queens little flush fluff cake, you know, in a stall with you know <laughs> You know, clipping his ears and putting blankets on him and stuff.
1: Yeah. So, it, gosh, you have so much experience. I'm gonna I'm gonna use this as an opportunity to pick your brain a little bit, Kip. Um, uh, you said you rode quite a few warm bloods and and things that ended up being sport horses. Um, being from Virginia, there's quite a lot of that around here. Um, and I deal with those horses quite a bit. Um, do you feel like there's anything to the, like, not that they're, I don't think warm bloods are any dumber, but it definitely seems sometimes like they mature mentally and physically a lot slower than like what your thoroughbreds and stock horses might end up doing, you know,
2: logical fact. Most, most warm bloods, mentally and physically mature later in life than a smaller type frame horse whether it's a thoroughbred quarter horse an arab Mm -hmm. uh anything like that but any of those warm bloods are going to mature later in life primarily because historically they go back to the draft horse deal yeah you know um however i'll i'll give you a little caveat to your next question that doesn't mean you shouldn't start them at a year and a half or two years old. Mm-hmm. Unlike most of those English people, want to wait till they're at least three or four in some cases. Well, oh, that's fine, but you find somebody else to start them because by then they're three and weigh fourteen hundred pounds, and they have experience at being a dipshit on the end of the halter haltero, and they're no fun to play with.
1: <laughs> <Mm-mm>. So, <laughs> I I got one of those this summer. It was a four-year-old Hanoverian that they wanted halter broke and then started, and I was just looking up at this horse oh. like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> this, yeah. yeah, those kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah this <laughs> this mountain of an animal. I'm gonna I'm gonna teach it to get its hind quarters. You know, I'm like, "Golly, this might take a little while." Yeah, yep. So, yeah, but I. I definitely, um, you know, cause I've, I've started, um, started several warm bloods and it's not that they're bad horses or anything like that, but it is like, it's almost like they still do have like the baby brain almost, you know, like you just, oh like, and obviously yep. I'm sure part of it is me, but like, if I were, if you know, I'm the constant and you have like I'm starting like two quarter horses, two thoroughbreds, and a warm blood. That warm blood, I f- can feel like I'm doing like setting up a lot of the same stuff, and like every day I have to basically reteach him what's going on. And then the other horses, they're like, "Yeah, we're kind of moving on down the line." Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
2: That's standard. Yep. That's how it they- is.
1: And that's what I figured, but you. Just-
2: yeah, they'll. you present to the warm blood every single day for twice as long as you would have any of those other horses mm-hmm. and then maybe one day it'll click but on that same day there'll be three or four things click for that warm blood coat where you might notice that you're only getting one thing to click per day with those other horses hmm that it, it's kind of my opinion, it kind of seems to be that way you know you, you work your ass off on all of them. And relatively speaking, you're trying to do your best, riding them all the same. Considering maybe they're all at the same place in their education, um, you'll think, man, this blood is dumb as a post. It hasn't learned a thing, and I've been riding it for 30 days, and then all of a sudden, you got it in the bag. You know, it it can do uh, do X, Y, and Z, and have a good attitude about it, and Boy, it took you four or five days to get it to where your quarter horse, Colt, could do X, and then the next day it could do Y, and the next day it could do Z, and but it's still got a crabby attitude about all of it. Mm. But you'll find that warm-blood horse will be able to do all three of those things and have a good attitude all on the same day. It's just going to take exponentially longer. <laughs> huh. So Because of the, the immaturity thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Without a doubt
1: I've never I've never heard that take before that's really interesting
2: yeah yeah it's been my experience on quite a few of them huh. and I've got a billion of them let me tell you yeah I mean for 2000 from 2006 till 2020 the eight horses that I averaged on a monthly basis six of them were warm bloods cart <laughs> the board year round huh. so i've rode a few ones warm-
1: that's a that's a lot of getting on from the fence
2: oh yeah <laughs> well i, I got around because i could fit them um you get them up to on the fence and then it makes it a hell of a lot easier yeah yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely that's cool yeah i've never i've never heard that take but it does kind of make sense because um you know from you know they might not be as as sharp mentally, but gosh, it does seem like they're all kind of just big puppy dogs like they have that like draft like almost like laboratory retriever demeanor a lot of the times,
2: yeah, if they haven't been screwed up by by somebody either unknowingly or actually attempting to do a good job and then not doing it, if they haven't been screwed up in the halter. Or if they haven't been screwed up by somebody else trying to get them rode, I, you know, I they weren't bad horses. If, you know, people always ask me, well, you've been riding horses for the public for how many ever years? How many of the horses that you've ridden for the public would you like to have as your own personal horses? Well, quite frankly, I can think of four right off the top of my head, and three of them are warm bloods. Hmm. And I want a cowboy. Yeah but three of them are because and whether I was just lucky or just happened circumstances or whatever, those those three particular warm bloods that I'm thinking of were damn nice cow horses when I was done riding. Mm. Now they've all gone dressage horses and and two of those horses have had pretty big successful careers on the dressage thing. Um, but... Right off the top of my head, the first four horses I would pick, three of them are warm blood horses. Hmm.
1: So, That's cool. That's really interesting to me.
2: Yeah. And I, I, I wouldn't ride absolutely any differently than I would, you know, the backyard weekend warrior person, or if I was riding horses for some cow outfit to make cowboy ranch type horses out of them. I didn't ride the warm bloods any different whatsoever.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. In in my part of the world, um, there's quite a few gated horses being in the Appalachian mountains and stuff, a lot of walkers and, um, Rocky mountain horses and stuff. Um, and I probably without fail, like every other month will have someone explain to me how like, well, that all that stuff is, is different. Cause these horses are gated and like, to me it's like beating a dead horse and we don't need to get into it um, all that much, but it's just, it just, it does give me a chuckle. Cause they're like, no, no, no. no. Like I, you, you might be, um, ha, you might have a few things going on with these horses, but you see these horses are gated, so they're completely different and you're going to have to reevaluate what you're going to do with my horse. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. All right. And then you take them and just do the exact same thing. And the end.
2: Don't, don't go. You're right on track, man. Yep.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. People, people can, uh, turn their, it's almost like they turn their horses into snowflakes, right? Like, well, I know this has worked on thousands and thousands and thousands of horses, but this one's different. You see? So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The only way it could be different if it had two heads, you know, that's about all.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Kip, I want to ask you a question when you're riding horses for the public. Now I'm sure you don't change your standard for how you work with horses and what you expect, but when you're riding horses for other people, And you have that in mind. Is there something you change versus the way you would ride horses for yourself? Something you think about or work with, build in there with someone else riding that horse in mind. And most likely that person not being as handy as you are, maybe going to get in a dangerous situation down the road or going to try to show him or do something totally outside the realm of what you'd want to do with one of your horses and you keep that in mind, and how does that translate to the way you work with that horse, if it does at all?
2: Between between riding one for the public and riding one for myself, the only thing I might <clears throat> concentrate more so on is getting the basics as far as halter work goes, i.e. groundwork and the basics under saddle, you know, a one-range stop, being able to step the front quarters through one front foot at a time and have that soft feel getting to their feet. And then probably being able to ride them with a flag with absolutely no twitch whatsoever in them. Whether the wind's blowing the flag or I'm waving the flag, doesn't matter. And getting a rope around them, you know, because to get those horses gentle and to have the very rudimentary basics on the halter rope and under saddle, that's going to be your saving grace, without a doubt. Because, like, for me, I got a horse here and here that I've been riding. And I don't own the horse, but the lady that owns it probably will never take possession of it. Is that canoe? So I've rode that horse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, that Roan gelding. Yeah. Yeah. I've ridden the horse as if it was gonna be mine for the rest of my life or the rest of his life. So that horse is a little bit maybe a little bit lighter to the leg. Um and now, just because of how long I've been riding one on, now he's totally cool with everything. I mean I don't I don't know if you could get him in trouble, quite frankly. Um but when I first started riding him, I probably didn't sack him out as good as I could have or as good as I, I, I know I needed to do. But I the only reason I did that is, or didn't do that, is because I knew it was gonna be mine. You know, that I was gonna ride him. So, you know, on those public horses, you have no idea what kind of their, what kind of gear they're gonna use. Uh, what kind of terrain they're going to ride in, what they're actually going to do, <clears throat> and all that kind of stuff. So you're trying to cover your bases as extensively as you can. Well, because you have, let's let's admit it, you're on a time frame, whether it be the 60 or 90 days you're riding that horse. Or you're only on him for an hour every day because you got six or seven other ones standing around doing nothing, you know. So, the time frame that you're on, you're a little bit restricted by that. So, you got to get all your ducks in a row to make a really solid horse for that person you're going to send it home to. Because you have no idea what they're going to end up doing with it, just like you were saying, you know, whether they're an experienced rider or not, whether they're, you know, have aspirations to show that horse in whatever. Uh, or have aspirations to let it eat grass in the pasture for a year, you know, so getting your basics on the end of the halter rope and under the the saddle is a huge deal without a doubt. Mm. So, and some advice that I got from Brandman when I left, when I quit working for him and went out on my own, I asked him point blank. I said, I said, so you kind of know my ability. I'm going to go home and ride horses for the public. What do I need to know? What, what do I need to do? And he said, well, there's two things. Don't be a horse trainer. And I was like, what? Is, isn't this what we're doing here? That's kind of the objective? What, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, you get them gentle, like you've come to learn how to do. And you ride them to make them gentle. You leave the training part up to whoever is going to be the next rider. And his his point, of course, was, don't try to make that horse something that he isn't, and don't try to put on a bunch of fancy movement on the horse, because nine times out of ten, Joe Client, no offense, Joe, but Mister Client is is not going to do any of that fancy stuff anyway, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Get the horse. And the second thing they said was never lie about the number of rides you got on. It. So, so that's kind of the deal. And I've, I've stuck to that pretty heavy. Like I say, if, if I know it was going to be my colt, there'd probably be some things I'd let slide only because of my confidence and, and experience. Um, but as far as a public horse goes, and I, I cross my T's and I dot my I's for damn sure.
0: Thanks Kip. I'm going to put that in the bank because every little bit helps. And I I ride a few for other people and it. it, Every one of them it's, I learned something new, but it's not just with horses. It's with things like this, with coming away from it, going, you know, the next person I'm going to treat them better or different. Or I had something recently where I had a phone call that I missed and then I got a voicemail from a guy and, um, Pretty seemed like it would have been a cool horse to ride, and I didn't call him back. I thought, well, I'll call him back tomorrow. Then I'll call him back tomorrow. Called him back about four (laughs) days later. He had found a new trainer. And I I don't really care about riding everybody's horse, but I thought, you know, that's something where I probably, if I did it there, I'm doing it in other areas of my life. And I need to get more on the ball because it's not the end of the world that I missed out riding some horse, but maybe I'm missing out on some other things. That I'm thinking, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. And then you keep doing that and you do it next week or next month or maybe never at all. And that's something yeah. I would not have seen. Yeah. Maybe till years down the road, if not for dealing with people all the time, like I'm in the position to
2: now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty diligent about responding to my horse clientele pretty Pretty short order you know um i don't like doing the email thing so i i mean i'll answer emails pretty promptly but i don't like doing it and unlike a lot of guys that don't carry a cell phone with them when they're riding i do so you could call me literally from six o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night and i will answer the phone period you know unless i'm engaged a supper or something like that yeah but just on a nine times call me i'm gonna answer it uh and the reason is is for exact the reason that that you just commented on it might be somebody want me to ride a horse and it might be somebody telling me i won the lottery so i when you're in business for yourself you've got to answer the phone if that's how people get a hold of you so that's just the part of the deal
0: yeah, I appreciate cool. that, man, because there's some people, Joe and I talk about this sometime, but there's some people that you try to get a hold of. And like when you get to where we are, which is like very at the bottom of the <laughs> the lineup of who's important, but you're like just inside of that window where now you're you're the deal in your own little realm, and you got to get shit done sometimes. So you got to call somebody, and they don't answer their phone. And then they don't answer their phone, and then it's like yeah. four or five days later, and you notice that. And then you call a guy who's pretty important and he answers his phone. And you're like, I like that guy. Call him again a couple weeks later. He answers. You're like, I like him even more. And you start to in your mind, get a little list of the guys who answer the phone and the guys who don't.
2: Yep. Yeah. Without a doubt. You know, I mean, and and the only reason I do it that way is because when I got my cell phone, the first cell phone I ever got, that was the only telephone that I had. And I lived in a little apartment on the end of an indoor arena. And uh, it it only worked if I was standing outside or if I was sitting on a horse in the middle of the arena. That's the only place I could actually get served. So when the phone rang, I'd run out like if I was in the house there in my little apartment. I'd run out in the middle of the parking lot in front of the horse barn and stand there in the middle of the barnyard talking on the phone. But... That's that's when people knew how to get a hold of me, you know, after dark on the weekdays. So that's what I had to do. So consequently I've just gotten developed that habit or got into that habit of of answering the phone. And nowadays, you know, with everybody's got a cell phone. I mean, I don't even know anybody that actually has a landline phone anymore. But uh, you know, they all every one of those cell phones have caller ID. So you know who's calling. So you can either choose to answer it or not. Well, unless it says spam or I don't recognize your number or your name's not in my contacts, I don't answer it. But, you know, if if your name came up, Ben, I'd answer it every time. Just because, you know, if you're calling me, it must be something that you need or got a question or whatever. Well, I'm happy to visit with you. I'm not... I'm, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I read something the other day from Charlie Russell, you know, the famous cowboy artist in Montana here. Yeah. Nobody is important enough to be important. And that that really stuck with me for some reason. So if basically if you call me, I'm gonna answer. So <laughs> unless of course it's two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> What about
0: if I call twice within about 30 seconds of each other or three <laughs> times? The secret, the secret. Yeah. yeah, Like the SOS call signal. That's what I right. tell my girlfriend. Cause like exactly. when, I'm, when I'm riding, I know she'll call me a lot. So I tell her, I say, you know, sometimes if I'm like, if you're, if I, cause I got to do the herdbound exercise quite a bit, I'll be honest. So if I'm doing that and you call me, I'm probably not going to answer if it's her. But I tell her, you know, if you call me twice in quick succession, I'll call you back. That's like the, that's the signal. Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, I, I don't know about you, Ben, but I feel like that's a, that's some really good advice to end on right there that um absolutely i I like that quote quite a bit kip and and that's the type of stuff that's why we're doing this podcast in the first place is get to talk to some interesting people and um get some really cool cool advice like that so you you've been a pretty awesome guest tonight man and we can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us
2: well i hope it all worked out i um when Ben first called me about it, I was like, yeah, I don't know, man. And then I listened to a few of your guys' podcasts and that kind of thing. And I thought, you know what? These guys are, these guys are into it. They asked some pretty innovative questions about things. And it was all, all directly related to the person you were doing the interview with. So I was like, yeah, heck I'll do it. Shucks. You know? Um, So I'm glad it, I'm glad it worked out. Hopefully the video feed because of my phone debacle will be all right and all the stuff, but,
1: Yeah, I don't think it'll be a problem at all.
0: Well, like in what Joe just said, it all comes back to, you know, we just got something out of it. And I'm really thankful for that, to just get to visit with you. And and even if we didn't do a podcast, man, I mean, I know we all have busy lives. But I'd love to just get on this thing and visit with you for an hour and a half, you know. And that's how we view it, you know. And then people are, hey, you guys listening. You're lucky enough to listen to this with us. But really, it's Joe and I visiting with kip you know and that's what we get out of it and if we didn't get that out of it we'd stop doing it today
2: so
1: yeah um, yeah this is a product this is a product purely of our own self-interest for any of you guys wondering
2: (laughs) well there's nothing wrong with that yeah you know so people ask me all the time how come you still go ride with buck and i said well primarily because every time i go i get better when i go home so I'm I'm still learning, you know. And there's a lot of things that I've seen ten thousand times or heard that many times, but maybe that particular thing didn't sink in until that weekend at that clinic. Yeah. So that's why. I- yeah. So
1: maybe maybe you're hey, part warm blood.
2: Well, I don't know. That there's a there's a chance of that, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, before we end this, we shouldn't give up on a perfectly good tradition. And that is we, we hit people. You might have listened to this, Kip, as we do a Mount Rushmore or something with our guests. And knowing you and right. listening to this podcast, I was thinking for your Mount Rushmore, if tomorrow you were called away from this earth, this great life, and you were ported away to horsemanship heaven, and you're going to need some gear, right? So, And you have none there gotta all be made what's the four makers that you would say God I gotta have these these four guys need to be there too so they can make my gear can you do that without of course we're not disqualifying anybody else but we're just saying the four guys he'd say I gotta have them and and you remember now you got to outfit yourself to ride horses rope cows
2: cowboy outside and all that Well, I can't just narrow it down to four, because what are you going to pick? Because you got, you know, you got a snaffle bit rig, you got a set, got a pair of shad, got a catch rope. Okay, well, let's. How about we narrow
0: it down to, Um,
2: you know, so to leather,
0: to leather. That's pretty tough. Oh, okay. Here, I got a better one. Then, yeah, yeah. yeah, Because I'm seeing where that's going. It it seemed a little easier before, but that's all right. (laughs) I don't mind screwing up on here. So we'll back off of that. Out the horse. And we'll say, if you were still going, what's the top four things that you'd want to have to be able to, you know, and, and that's.
2: Oh, definitely. Does that make any sense? I'd, I'd have to say a, Ch- a Chaz Weldon saddle. And of course that'd go. be a, that'd be a Wade. Saddle. That's a, that's a no brainer. Um, A Sarah Hagel McCarty on a snaffle bit. A pair of Dave Thornberry shotgun shafts and Paul Bond boots.
1: There you go. I like it. Hard. Well, I eat. guess that
0: turned out all right after all, but sometimes a good idea in my <laughs> mind comes out of my mouth. is kind of a stupid idea, <laughs> but I don't mind sucking every now and then. I can't kill every time <laughs> I get on this thing, man. It's hard.
2: Well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that's sucking. You just got to narrow down a little more. Yeah. Because to pick four things to outfit my horse and myself, that'd be extremely hard. Yeah. Because they're all, you know, but uh, I'm going to go with those four things.
1: So, That's a four good things. Yeah. That's a good list right there. I don't think uh, it would be hard to argue by anybody.
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> cool, man. Well All righty. Well, Kip, we've had a great time. We'll... Yeah, it's been it's been great, man. I I know Ben knew yeah. you prior to all this, but um gosh, I I just feel like as someone starting out in uh, in this world and and you know, specifically in the riding horses for the public deal, um getting to sit and talk with people like you is just invaluable for someone like me and i'm sure ben feels the same way so we're extremely grateful for your time you bet
2: it was a lot of fun thanks a lot i appreciate it yeah you bet so if it all if it if it all goes to hell in a handbasket and you didn't get any of it recorded or whatever let me know and we'll try to do it again (laughs)
0: sounds good i think we got this but we might take you up on that yeah maybe in six months to a year or sometime if we catch up with you that'd be a lot of fun Mm -hmm
2: sure
1: yeah maybe try right. to do the next one in person you
0: bet yeah
2: yeah that'd be great yeah absolutely all right Alrighty. fellas,
1: take care kip see you guys